Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Spring of Life. Giving my best each day is a demanding task that requires good health, and I try to stay on top of it as much as possible, but some days I could just use something extra. And so I've been taking daily energy from Spring of Life. Daily Energy is one of the most complete nutritional supplements I've seen. It has over 70 natural ingredients that target 11 key areas of health, and it's much more than just a greens product or a health drink. We've worked out a deal with Daily Energy so that listeners like yourself can get 30% off right now. Go to dailyenergy.com smart for this special offer. Again, that's dailyenergy.com smart and save 30% on Daily Energy. It's the simplest life hack you can do for your health this year. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here, as always, and thank you for joining us. Got a great one for you today, something that I think can help everyone out and everyone listening can take immediate action on what they learn, which is fantastic. And we're combining something we do all the time with brain science, which you know is like a is like a perfect combination. It's what we live for here. This week, we are interviewing David Huffeld, and he is the author of the brand new book, The Science of Selling, Proven Strategies to Make Your Pitch, Influence Decisions, and Close the Deal. I'm going to be honest, just from that title alone, I feel like I'm being sold, but I think you will agree after you hear this episode David, not only does he know his stuff inside and out, but he provides, in my opinion, some of the best sales advice I have ever heard. And we've interviewed sales consultants and sales experts. And yes, they all have value. But I just really, there was, there were things that David said that to me seemed logical, helpful, and also something I could immediately implement and will use um, in 
careers I have and things I do with selling. A little bit more about David. He is the CEO and chief sales trainer of Huffeld Group. He's pioneered a revolutionary sales approach based on neuroscience, social psychology, and behavioral economics that radically increases sales. Prior to Huffeld Group, he was a top-performing and award-winning salesperson and sales leader for numerous organizations, and I do ask him about some of those, and he has earned a master's degree and studied selling at Harvard Business School. This interview is chuck full of information. It might be one you're going to have to listen to twice or hit that replay button a few times and take some notes. But if you don't want to take notes, but you do want highlights from some of our favorite episodes, as well as insights, extras, etc., head on over to smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter. There's a box in the bottom right-hand corner, or you might see a pop-up, sign up and join the smart people community. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are in the world. Hope you enjoy this interview with David Huffield as we talk about selling. Enjoy. Well, David, first I want to say thanks so much for being on the show and taking time out of your schedule to join us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You know, I'm excited to get into this one. Uh, the book is The Science of Selling. And I think selling in so many different contexts, I mean, it's important, but it also comes across as sometimes slimy or sleazy. Some people love it. Some hate it. It's just such a charged topic. It really is. A lot of people, when they think of a salesperson, their their mind goes to the stereotypical salesperson uh, from the 1970s, uh, wearing the gold chains and the sunglasses, gold chains and sunglasses, and trying to sell you a used car. Mm -hmm. And uh, the good news is, selling has evolved today with our transparent marketplace. Boy, sellers are more accountable than ever before, and this has driven out a lot of those with, you know, unethical practices. And so, selling is is really on the way up. And not only that, but we all sell if you think about it. And the reason I say that is because what salespeople essentially do is they influence, they guide people in taking what they say seriously and being willing to act on it. And isn't that what we all want? We all want people to take what we say seriously and being willing to act on what we suggest. And so regardless of if, if you're in the profession of selling or not, we're all trying to sell our ideas. We're all trying to get people to take what we say seriously and act on it. So these strategies that we talk about in my book and that we teach are applicable really to anyone in an organization or even in your personal life. I know for me, I'm always trying to get my kids to clean up after themselves and clean their room. And so even, even there's even strategies for things like that that's all grounded in some really neat science that we could talk about. Yeah, and, and we'll definitely cover that. Now, what? Uh, tell us a little bit about your background. What got you interested in selling? What uh, got you interested in this topic? And how did you kind of get to the point of being a you know a sought after sales kind of consultant and expert? Well, I got into sales like most people that are my age and been in sales for a while, and that is by accident. I had just graduated with my master's degree, and I needed the job in the summer. And so I was looking for something temporary, and uh, this is many years ago. I'll date myself because I went to the newspaper, and I opened it up. That's where you used to go to look for jobs, and uh, I found one on sales, and it said, make $100,000 your first year, 
no experience necessary. And I thought, well, this is perfect because I would love to make $100,000 in one year. I couldn't even imagine that much money at the time. And I said, I have no experience. So this, this sounds wonderful. So I called up and then I went in and interviewed and they hired me. And, and uh, within a short period of time, I fell in love with selling. And I began to study it and get good at it. And over the years, I progressed from a sales person to a manager, director of sales, VP of sales for one of the fastest growing companies here in the United States. And, and then I stumbled on an academic journal in social psychology many years ago. And I just read it and I applied one of the articles to what I was doing as a sales professional. I thought, boy, this is really relevant to what I do every day. I wonder what happens if I use this strategy that they were advocating for that was backed by some science. And uh, I applied it, and I got results, and I shared it with the sales team I was managing, and they got results. And so then I began to wonder, is there other you know, science-backed ideas from these academic journals? And so I began to get a very odd hobby. I would read academic journals in disciplines like social psychology, cognitive psychology, behavioral economics, social neuroscience, cognitive neuroscience, and apply that in the world of selling. And boy, I saw such astounding results. The company I was um, VP of sales for, when I really started really applying the science hardcore, the sales skyrocketed. We were on the Inc. 5000 list. We grew by 400% in one year. I mean, it was absolutely amazing. And I thought, wow, I got to get this out and show other people about this because we don't have to guess our way to success anymore. We can actually do this based on real science that describes how our brains form choices and the factors that influence whether we decide one way or another. And so in 2009, I launched my firm, Huffel Group, of January 2009. And boy, we have helped companies, big ones, Fortune 500 companies, small companies with only a single business owner and everything in between. And it's been amazing to see the difference when you can leverage science in the sales process in very practical ways. And what we found is, it allows you to, to be predictably effective. You do not have to guess your way to success anymore because armed with the scientific data, we can literally improve the performance of any salesperson or anyone who just wants more influence in their life as well. Clearly, that is a topic that we need to get into because, as you said, I do think everyone sells either in their job or at some point in life, and, and those that do it for their job are probably those most interested but I got to go back and ask you, so that first job you took, did you make $100,000 in the first year with no experience? I have to ask. <laughs> I did not. Okay. I did not. Not even close. In fact, I found out uh, in month two, because I, you know, I met a lot of the salespeople. In fact, I met all of them. And I asked them, you know, because it wasn't adding up because I'm like, boy, I'm like, I'm doing pretty well for a new hire here. Right. How come I'm not making anywhere near 100000 and I found out none of them were. So the ad wasn't uh, completely honest. The top one was making about 80 grand. Uh, but I was only at that job for a few months. And then I went to a, another competing company. And, and did ex man, then I made over 100000 right. uh in my first full year. But uh, yeah, no, I did not. No one actually was making 100000 so. See, so not that much has changed. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing I want to ask is what's some stuff you have sold in the past? Sort of a variety of things. So I've sold in business to consumer sale early on. That was my first jobs. And then also B2B world. So I've sold, boy, 
uh, things like memberships. I sold real estate. I've sold software. I've sold uh, training for a Microsoft training mm. uh, for a company. Uh, so a variety of things. And then with our clients over the years, too, a lot of times, especially early on in my career, whenever I took on a new client, I would go and often sell for them, which was an odd thing to do. That was one of the ways I was able to get in the door was saying, my stuff works. Let me prove it to you. I'll sell for you. Mm. And then if I can produce results, uh, then you'll be my client. And they would say, okay, yeah, that's, that's an odd thing to say. So sure, why not? Right. And so um, and we would often do that early on. So sort of a variety of products. Um, some large, very complex sales. So sales cycles, six to nine months, many decision makers. And then we've also done some in the, in the B2C world that are one call closes, you know, high ticket items when you're asking people for a big decision right when you first meet them. So we've been able to test this science out in a variety of areas. And what I love about it is that though the application does shift, depending on the sales environment you're in, the, the process or the, the foundational principles do not because they're not based on a certain sales environment. They're literally based on how the brain makes a buying decision. That's what these scientific disciplines study. And so we then use the science and now we say, okay, how do we apply that in this specific context? And it really gives us that foundation of using science and then building off of that. So we have that firm uh, objective, verifiably effective foundation that really enables you to achieve a high level of success very quickly. Well, the other thing I was wondering is, did you ever find selling to be, I mean, you said you liked it, but for example, uh, you know, you call somebody up out of the blue, cold call and try and pitch them something. For me, even though I've done a lot of selling in the past, there's a lot of aspects of that that make me uncomfortable. And so did you ever feel that way? I'm sure you come across people that do feel that way. And what would you say to them? Yes. So certain people that really bothers, um, you know, for me, it doesn't that much. Once in a while, it will, depending on the context. But boy, early on, it really didn't too much. I was pretty much a bull in there. Uh, my first few sales jobs, I would go in and, and uh, really, really uh, very, very persistent uh, young man, which is key. You know, there's some things like any job, I guess I would say, that you're not going to like. And there's ways to overcome uh, call reluctance, what it's called, when people just don't want to make the call they don't like, especially initiating new business. There's a high level of rejection that comes with that. And so one thing I think that's helped me, number one, is to not take it personally, that they're not rejecting me, they're rejecting the pitch. Second thing, I, I don't look at failure as an indictment on me. I would advocate that all of us, anyone that's successful fails a lot. Uh, you might not see the failure. It's not as visible as the successes are, but everyone fails a lot. What they do, successful people, is they take failure as feedback. So when you try to make calls, let's say cold calling, and you know, you're just getting a lot of rejection, you're not getting anywhere, I would say, okay, number one, it's not, it's not against me personally, but number two, what can I learn from this? Obviously, my approach isn't working. How can I improve my performance? How can I create a context that makes it easier for people to say yes to me or give me a few moments of their time. And so I use it as learning. So look at it as feedback, not an indictment against you. And if you take that perspective, there's things in every job you're not going to like. And, and selling as well, especially, again, pursuing that new business, as you mentioned, with that high rate of rejection. And so take it as feedback. Try to do it as, okay, how do I learn from this? How do I get better? How do I make this happen less and less every day? rather than just sticking with what you're doing. And so if you have that perspective, it changes your perception of the, uh, 
the perceived failure. And when you look into that feedback and not a personal indictment against you, it can really empower you then to start thinking outside the box, to start thinking in very productive ways rather than just shrinking back and getting depressed. Here's another thing. So you brought me back to, I think, something I had kind of blocked out of my memory for a while and brought back some PTSD when I was... Um, when I was, uh, let's see, I think I was a sophomore or something in high school over a summer, uh, I wanted to work in finance, be a stockbroker or something like that. So I interned for uh, an insurance, you know, small insurance company, right? Just basically a guy, well, wealth management. And my goal or my job was cold calling for new business, kind of like you said. And it was the type of thing, you know, it's all a numbers game. The more you call, we know the percentages. Here's the script. You can save time by not hanging up the phone, just hitting the, you know, the hang up button, all that stuff, right? Really, really high, hardcore sales. But the thing that, that never worked for me, it, it wasn't even the rejection so much because, okay, fine. It was the fact that like most of these people I was calling didn't need the product mm -hmm. or service. And I was just obviously interrupting and or bothering them. So how do you get over that? Because if I think of all the people that call me and try and sell me stuff, all the emails I get, a lot of it is just a nuisance. And if I'm that person, I'm acutely aware of being a nuisance. Yeah, that's a whole nother issue now. So it's one thing when you have a product or service that you know the person you're talking to will benefit from. So it's it's a win-win for both of you that it's it's in their best interest and yours to break through the noise in their in their life and in the workplace and try to gain an audience with them. It's another thing when you know that you're not really going to help them and they view it as a nuisance, and, and ultimately, you know, you do as well. No one's really going to win with this. Um, in that case, I would say we need to do a couple things. That's a, what I would suggest is you want to invest your time as a sales professional. So you have a limited amount of time, and there's a lot of people you could talk to and you could pursue. So I would strongly suggest that an organization uh, really try to strategically invest their time. Because when you're talking to one person, you're not talking to another. When you're pursuing one, you're not pursuing another. So think, okay, who is my ideal client? Who's someone that I know I can really help? What is that buyer persona? What does that individual look like? And then once I understand that, then I try to engage those people. So rather than just a shotgun approach where I just try to hit a lot of people, most of which it sounds like are going to fall outside of the, the really the people that are going to benefit from your product. So the likelihood of selling them anything is slim. And even if you do, they're not going to be happy, which ultimately creates more problems than it's probably worth. Instead, I would be laser focused, especially if I'm in a small business. And I would say, okay, wh where am I going to get my biggest wins quickly? How can I identify who my potential customers are? And now, then I say, okay, how do I engage them? So if I'm engaging the wrong people, it's counterproductive. So you need to understand your buyer. Now, we focus a lot on, okay, how your buyer brains make a decision and understanding what they need. But ultimately, qualifying is a very important part of selling. So I need to understand my buyer. And as I'm talking to someone, I'm qualifying them. So for example, uh, we sell sales you know, training and consulting, all kind of amazing products. But let's say I'm talking to someone and they have no budget. So their budget's totally shot for 2017. And they have nothing. That, they can buy sales training regardless of how uh, well I sell it or how much they want it. 
I'm not going to engage them at a, a deep into a conversation. Now, I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to prepare for later on, and I'm going to give them some resources and give them some value so I become a position myself effectively for later on and maybe get some referrals and so on. But I'm not going to invest months of my time pursuing someone and hours and hours every week when I know they can't buy. So I want to qualify that early on because when I'm talking to them, I'm not talking to someone else who is ready to buy. And so I want to be really focused on that qualification phase. So that was what, number one, if I was consulting for the organization that you just um, asked about, that would be one of the, the things I would say is most likely you're losing a lot of business because we're not laser focused on who we can really help, who needs our product or service. And I think if you're talking to those people, a lot of the call reluctance that you described there uh, quickly evaporates because you're convinced now that it's in their best interest to talk to you. Right. So exactly kind of what you know, I was thinking along the lines of if you don't believe not only in the product or service, but in the fact that the person you're speaking with needs it, then it's never going to work for either of you is kind of, and, and I think that's a kind of widely held sales assumption or realization that uh, is true. And so I think that's kind of what you're alluding to, right? Yeah. And we can even go further. If you, if you sell a product or service right now and you dislike it, you don't like the product or service, you don't like what you're doing, I would recommend quitting uh, immediately. Uh, and here's why. We're in a hyper-competitive marketplace right now, and boy, if you're staying in the same place, meaning if you're not continually developing your skills and abilities, you're falling behind in today's marketplace. And what I found is people that don't like what they're doing, they don't want to think about it when they're not at work. Um, they're not trying to learn mm -hmm. more and develop their skills. They're just trying to get through the day. And in today's marketplace, you can't compete. Plus, you only get one life. If you hate what you're doing, find something you want to do. You know, um, Figure a way out of what you're doing and get into what you love because that's what you're going to invest yourself into. Like what I do, sales training and looking at the science of selling, I think about it literally every second of the day. I think about it when I go home at night. I think about it on my way into the office. I think about it when I'm uh, flying. I dream about it sometimes. I love this stuff, and I'm a tough guy to compete with because I never stop working. I don't have balance in my life. I'm obsessed with this stuff. I'm constantly thinking about it, constantly trying to serve my clients. So this is my one thing I do. Find out what your one thing is and then pursue it. If it's not what you're doing, I would recommend finding out what is and then going and doing that because you'll be far more successful and doing something you hate uh, is a tough way to spend you know, your life because most of what we do, our time is spent working. And so if you really don't like what you're doing, get out. If you don't like the, the, what you're selling, you, can't, you, know, you don't like talking about it, get out. Maybe you can't do it today, but think about what would I love to do? Now, how do I get from where I am to there? Develop a plan and start moving forward. And the quality of your life will radically increase. Once again, we'd like to thank Casper Mattresses for being such an amazing sponsor of Smart People Podcast. If you're still sleeping on your old, uncomfortable bed, what are you doing? It's time to get rid of it and get a Casper mattress. The Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Supportive memory foam creates an award-winning sleep service with just the right sink and just the right bounce. I think the Casper mattress is amazing, but you don't have to take my word for it. Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. If that's still not enough, you can try Casper for 100 nights risk-free in your own home. If you don't love it, 
They'll pick it up and refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering you're going to spend a third of your life on it. And as always, you get free shipping and returns to the U.S. and Canada. So listen up, Smart People Podcast listeners. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com smart and using offer code SMART. That's www.casper.com smart and using offer code SMART. Terms and conditions apply. And now back to the episode. Yeah, that's one of the things that changed my mindset on selling. Exactly what you're saying is, you know, there's I, I've sold things I, I didn't like and things I loved. And it is a shift not only in my work ethic, but in my results. So uh, one last question there, and then I want to get into the science, or maybe this is the lead in here. You know, I, I read that uh, basically what this is, it's how to align sales behavior with how the brain naturally forms buying decisions. And although I understand if you qualify someone properly and you know to the best of your ability that they need your product or service, then it's on the salesperson to make that happen. I get that. But at what point does it become manipulation? If we kind of look into all the neuroscience and find all of the flaws or the hidden crevices of the human mind and then exploit them for sales and monetary gain, when does it become manipulation? It's a very important question, and it's a, um, it's a good one as well because that is a concern a lot of people have. A couple things we'll say about this, uh, and then I'll give you actually uh, three strategies to tell the difference between persuasion and manipulation, which is ultimately, I think, what the question is asking. Uh, selling with science is really, I think, a very productive way to sell because it's so focused on your buyer and a lot of the ideas don't work if you're trying to manipulate someone, meaning it's, it's so not seller-centric. Most sales practices are so – they're very much focused on the seller, and the buyer is just a sometimes willing or unwilling participant in the process. Whereas with science-based selling, it's all focused on the buyer. So we start with how does the buyer make a buying decision? What are the buyer's needs? Really understanding the perspective of the buyer. So it's so focused on them that it weeds out a lot of manipulation. But how do you tell the difference? First of all, um, a lot of times when people have concerns about this, they say, okay, well, I, I, don't want, I don't like these kind of things because they're manipulative. Here's the issue, number one. Persuasion is ingrained within communication. Um, meaning that for me to say that something is manipulative is a persuasive statement. So I have to borrow from that which I'm fighting against to even make the point. So think of any profession in business, um, advertising, counseling, social work, even the ministry. Uh, oftentimes people refer to them as persuasion professions because you're trying to influence other people in positive ways. So the question is how do we do that and when does – persuasion become corrupted where it becomes manipulation? Uh, that's the core question. I would say there's three real practical things. How do we tell the difference? Number one is what we call intention. Is what I'm doing helping the other person advance? Is it in their best interest if they buy my product or service? If it's not, then that's manipulation. So you're not doing something that it's a win for them. And really what this comes down to is oftentimes when we struggle with this, 
it's because we're looking at people not as people but as things to get what we want. Meaning, you're how I'm going to make my number for the month or you're how I'm going to make my commission check. So we're not looking at them as a person but a means to an end, which is manipulative. So I think Immanuel Kant, it was who, the great philosopher, who said that really the foundational precept of all morality is treating a human being as a person and not a thing. And I would agree. So intention number one, is my intention pure? Second, withholding truth. This is a big one that does happen sometimes in selling, where we don't give all the information, where people are surprised after they purchase because we were, they were misled. That is always manipulative. And in today's very transparent marketplace, it's counterproductive. Uh, it'll run you right out of business because nowadays when people get upset at your company or you, they don't just keep it quiet or tell their neighbor. They post it online on Facebook, on Twitter. They post reviews on Google. And so it haunts you. So it's not in anyone's best interest to do this uh, for sure. But it's always wrong. Withholding truth, number two. And then last one is coercion, which is ultimately do it or else. It's a, um, and that's not that big a factor in selling. But that's the third uh, thing that takes something from persuasive, which is I have a free choice, to manipulative. If I don't do this, I'm, you know, something bad's going to happen to me. And so I think really understanding the difference of when persuasion becomes corrupted and becomes manipulative with looking at intention, withholding truth, and then, of course, coercion can really help us make sure that we're always selling ethically and actually always behaving ethically, too. This isn't limited to sales. This is everyday life, making sure we're doing what's in the best interest of others, which will ultimately serve us as well. Well, I can get behind that. So I'm glad we covered that because, you know, it's something I always think about. I mean, even now, the idea of you walk into, a, say, a supermarket and then the you know, the ads you see are going to be eventually targeted at you and all these things. It's like, okay, we're learning more and more about our brain on a daily basis. And I get concerned on exploiting uh, evolutionary weaknesses or something like that. So I appreciate that explanation. Let's get into the book a little bit. Again, the, the science of selling, and I guess we've already gotten into it, but specifically I want where I want to start was at the beginning, you talk about why most salespeople underperform. And I found that to be a, uh, a good place to start and a very powerful point. So could you talk to us a little bit about, you know, what you found, why salespeople are on average underperforming? Absolutely. Yeah. What we found is quite simply, there is an astonishing gap between what science has proven regarding how our brains make choices and modern selling practices. So the root of the issue, and there are numerous ones in sales, but the root of them is that we're often behaving in ways that drive down the likelihood of the sale. For instance, one study out of Harvard Business Review found that when 800 salespeople were studied on actual sales calls, they found that 63% of the salespeople regularly behaved in ways that drove down the likelihood of the sale. Only 37% were consistently effective. And that study is not unique anymore. There is over and over and over again, we find that every piece of data that I've seen shows something very similar. And so we have an alarming problem in selling so that we're actually getting in the way of the sale. And this also gets to some of the ethics as well that we haven't talked about is oftentimes people are being shown a product or service that would help them in significant ways, but they reject it. Not because of the product or service, but because of how it was presented to them. And so we're selling in ways that are antagonistic to how our brains make choices. And I think all of us can relate to that when we think about how we as consumers 
have oftentimes been frustrated with salespeople that we've worked with. And, we, you know, we're interested. We, we know we need something, but the way they present their product or service, we're, we don't see value and we're confused and we just say no out of nothing more than frustration. And we have a hard time making a confident buying decision. And so I think this is a major issue. And what this science discloses is reality. And that's what science tells us. Here's what's really going on. We might perceive things. Sometimes we're right. Sometimes we're wrong. Science shows us reality. And so the more we can base how we sell on this objective, verifiably correct science, the more effective that we will be as sales professionals and the more we can truly serve our potential customers. And the byproduct of this is sales increases. But the core is we're actually basing it on how our buyers form buying decisions. And I think this is such an important point of selling. And I believe this is the future of selling. Uh, for example, just in um, last month, November, I was down at Harvard Business School uh, teaching the MBA students on this. And I am one of the first sales trainers in quite a while that's been at Harvard Business School, I was told, uh, for the simple reason that, um, you know, we're using science. And if you go to Harvard Business School without data and evidence, it'll be an interesting encounter <laughs> with the students. Uh, and so... This is, I believe, the future of selling, basing it on real science in very practical ways. What is some of that science? So tell us, you know, in a nutshell, how the brain formulates buying decisions. In a nutshell, there's a couple things. Two things I'll share. Number one, uh, and that is there are certain rules our brains follow when making choices. We, they make rapid judgments. So, for example, when we meet someone for the first time, our brains are able to size up that individual pretty accurately within a matter of seconds. How does a brain do that? How does the brain look at a complex human being and make rapid judgments about who they are, what kind of person they're like? Do you trust them? Do you not trust them? Should you, should you talk to them? Should you run away? All that is made very quickly. And so we use certain rules, and these rules heavily shape perception. And the good news is that behavioral scientists over decades now have uh, quantified these rules. So we now know what they are. And anytime you align how you sell with them, you instantly become more effective because you can help the brain perceive value, help the brain make good choices. The second thing we've, we've also identified that's really revolutionary is that a buying decision is comprised of certain incremental strategic commitments, meaning for our brains to say yes at the end of a sales call and buy a product or service, they must first say yes to certain commitments throughout the sales process. If they do not, the answer will always be no at the end. And so these are mission critical to the success of the sale. And we say basically selling is simply uh, a series of incremental commitments. It's the, they're the building blocks of the entire sale. And so when salespeople are helping potential customers make these commitments, it advances them on a natural progression of consent, leaning into that final commitment of a positive buying decision. And it's what really selling is all about. It helps people buy literally. Is it something that can be done systematically? Because I know that as a, you know, as a salesperson, there's so many pressures. You're told to sell different things and then that goal switches and then your comp changes and then the, your partner gets fired and then the buyer. Cha I mean, there's so many moving parts that... Again, if I went into it and I'm thinking, okay, I got to walk them through seven different yeses and I have to follow the brain science and they told me this and now I have to answer this way, it would seem a little overload. So have you kind of broken it down into a easily replicable and, and thing you can follow? 
Yes, you're exactly right. And that's what about the last 12 years of my life has, uh, has been, <laughs> is doing exactly that. So what we did early on, and we still do actually, is we read these academic journals and then we say, okay, how do we connect the dots between this and the real world of selling in very practical, easy to understand and easy to execute ways. And that's what we do. So we make it very easy so that it's not overwhelming, that you understand some of these basic ideas and then you can utilize them in the real world right away. And that's what the book is, the way the book is written. It's very practical, a lot of examples, exercises, but it's written in a way that it's not a journal, it's not a textbook. It's something you can read, understand, and as soon as you put that book down, you can begin utilizing the ideas within it immediately to help you get more sales. The other side of the coin is um, there's really no plan B in this. The plan B is to guess your way to success as well. So I, I suggest... And I tell people, listen, there's the science and there's everything else. Do you want to base your, your way you sell on conjecture or just trying to guess it or trial and error on your own? Um, why, why not use the science? And what we found is that when organizations do adopt a science-backed approach, meaning they have strategies that are built on this science, their sales always go up. I've never seen it yet where they don't go up, uh, and sometimes very dramatically because they're really aligning how they sell with how the brain buys. I have a, a bunch of other questions, but let's get to something practical people can take away. And I'm going to use something I'm familiar with. And I also know a lot of people who listen to the show uh, have a similar profession or, or thing they do, which is we could call it consulting. I think of it as coaching, right? So you do sales kind of coaching. So we'll look at that, right? When you're looking at new coaching clients, how, what are some things that people can do um, to increase the likelihood of closing the sale and gaining new clients? Well, there's a lot. Uh, there's a lot of different things you can do, rules you can follow, the way the brain perceives a choice. Um, one of the big things I would say is the commitments that we talked about. Let me talk about one in particular, and that is the foundational commitment in selling, which is why change. Anytime I'm talking to someone, or you are, or someone who wants to build their coaching practice, why should someone take you on as a coach? Why should they change what they're doing? Why shouldn't they just stay with how things are? And so what you're fighting against is really your biggest competitor. It's something called the status quo bias. And what that says is our brains instinctively, no one had to teach us this, we instinctively, we would rather do nothing than something. We assign a high level of risk to making a change. And so the status quo bias is a formidable competitor. In fact, all of us have lost more sales to nothing than to someone. And we don't lose most of our sales to a, a competitor like us. We lose it to them doing nothing, embracing the status quo bias and just saying, I'll wait. So how do you deal with that? Number one, what you want to do is you want to interrupt them with value. How can you give a potential client something of value that demonstrates your expertise? So maybe it's an article, a white paper, a blog post, a, a podcast. What can you give them that's going to provide them value that shows them how you can help them in meaningful ways? Then, So after you interrupt them with that insight, you want to quickly understand where are the issues that they're struggling with? What is the problem that they have that you can help them with? And as you understand that, not just um, identifying and finding the problem, but helping them understand the scope of it. What's causing that problem? And this is really important. What's the pain? What happens if they don't embrace you as a coach? What's the worst case scenario? What, what's going to happen? 
What, what are they going to lose? What will they gain if they do? Helping them think through that very quickly. And that's the first thing we need to address is why should they even consider change? Because if we're trying to present a solution when they don't see a need for change, they'll just view as irrelevant. They won't return your calls. They'll disconnect as quickly as humanly possible. And so we have to break through that. And one great way to do that is by giving value and kind of breaking through that status quo bias because that is uh, really one of the foundational things that will cost you sales. This week's episode is brought to you by Encapsula. Every day, websites of all sizes are attacked. Criminals use giant botnets to scrape website content, break into databases, and bring sites down. This can obviously be devastating for websites whose consumers are deterred by long load times and potential security threats. So make your website faster and safer with Encapsula. Encapsula is a cloud service that works to block attacks against your site while delivering your content to your customers faster. This is done by routing and filtering traffic between your servers and your customers using a global network of 30 data centers and 3 terabits of bandwidth. Meanwhile, Encapsula also caches content and optimizes connections using their CDN so your users get your content lightning fast. Encapsula is great. It protects and accelerates over 4 million websites every day from individual bloggers all the way up to Fortune 500 companies, so it's suitable for every kind of site. And you can rest easy knowing that Encapsula's custom software and 24-7 operations team are ensuring that everything is running smoothly. Here's what you have to do. Our listeners can try Encapsula one month free simply by visiting Encapsula.com slash smart. That's Encapsula.com slash smart. And don't forget to use our promo code S-M-A-R-T-P-P-L. That's Encapsula.com slash smart. And now back to the episode. That's a great point. I completely agree with you that when people don't buy, the reason more often than not is that they're just not buying anything. They're not making any change. That's right. status quo. I, I, I love that point. When you talk about providing something of value and interrupting that, is the idea to show them that, you know, without me, you wouldn't have had this little nugget, whatever it might be. And that's just a preview of what I can do. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah, and there's two things you're trying to accomplish there. One of them is exactly what you just suggested. So it's trying to demonstrate my value, demonstrate competency, that I'm going to give you this value uh, at no cost. And the reason I do that is rather than tell you how I can help you, how my coaching will improve your performance, I'd rather just show you so you can see for yourself. And they're like, okay, they'll take that. Second thing that does, though, is it leverages a scientific principle called reciprocity. Reciprocity says that we repay others for what they've done to us. So as I give you something at no cost to you, now I might say, you know, normally for this white paper or this report, you know, I charge $299, but I'm going to give it to you at no cost. So I'm assigning a value to it, $299, so they take it seriously, but I'm going to give it to you at no cost because rather than tell you, I'd rather show you. Oh, okay. They'll go, well, that's cool. That's different. Okay. And now once they accept that, now they're extremely likely to answer my questions. Why? Reciprocity says they feel a psychological debt. So now that they've taken something of value, they're like, okay, I'll give you a five minutes of my time. So rather than me calling you up, for example, and saying, um, you know, we have a coaching practice. 
think we can really help you. We've helped others just like you. If you have a few minutes, I can ask you some questions. We'll find out if we can be a good fit for you. You're going to reject that most of the time because you're busy. You don't want to go fishing for value. Right. I don't want to answer your questions. Exactly. (laughs) Instead, start with giving value. Give them something. Don't ask. Give. Leverage reciprocity. Demonstrate your expertise. Now, once they accept that, they're extremely likely to answer a few minutes of your questions, which allows you to get deeper into how you can really help them in meaningful ways. So too often, we engage people in a self-centered way with, hey, let me ask you some questions and we'll see if I can help you. No one wants to do that. People are too busy nowadays. They're not going to say yes to that. Uh, We have to give first and then ask, and you're far more likely to get your questions answered if you do that. Man, you just you just brought me back to I got a call from like a Marriott or, or something and they were like we we want to give you free st- stuff, I don't know. First let me ask you some questions. What's your favorite type of vacation? And I was like, uh, I like going to the beach." And they were like, "Great. What do you like to do at the beach?" And right there I was like, "How long is this going to go for? Why are you asking me a bunch of stuff? What you know, what do you want? Yep. I don't like you." The end of conversation. And I don't want to call out Marriott because I like them. So maybe it wasn't them, but still. <laughs> so yeah. I want to talk about actually good sales questions. So we provide something of value and then questions, you know, you, you discuss them at length in your book mm-hmm. um, are critical. What, what makes up a good question and what's the goal and what might it sound like? Yeah, so there's a lot on questions. Uh, We have a whole model of questioning that really helps you create really robust follow-up questions, which is really where the meat is. And it's based on how the brain discloses information. It's radically different than what most salespeople are taught, and it's very easy to use. People say it's almost intuitive. You can learn it in about, become an expert at it in about an hour. It's that quick because it's how your brain's already wired to work. What I'll say about questions, though, is You really want to focus on a couple things. Number one, how you ask them. We say there's levels of questions, that people reveal information in layers. The researchers refer to it as our brain discloses information like peeling an onion. You know, you peel back layer after layer after layer. That makes sense to us. But a lot of times the way we ask questions in sales is with types of questions, not layered questions. So we recommend layered questions as a first uh, level question. Second level, which is really where great salespeople live, and a third level. So first level questions, real quickly, are basic introductory questions that most salespeople already have down and specific to their industry about a thought, a fact, a behavior, a situation. Second level questions, though, are follow-up questions that are very impactful. You ask people to assess or explain something. Assess or explain. Very simple to do, but this is where you start to understand the perspective of your potential customer. And let me blow the listeners' minds right now in talking about the power of second-level questions. There has been a bunch of research on them. Number one, they've been found to increase trust levels, which is vital in selling. When you ask people second-level questions, the research shows that trust goes up because you're getting them to think through these things that are important to them. And it helps them formulate really what they want and really what their perspective is, which makes you seem more competent. Second, People like asking these questions. So people always ask me, are they going to like asking? Are they going to push back? No. Here's why. Research out of Harvard University, where they hook people up to fMRI machines that measure brain activity, found that when you ask second-level questions, the, the parts of the brain associated with pleasure light up. So people literally like answering second-level questions that allow them to disclose their opinions, right? Assess or explain. So there's numerous other research studies that have all been shown the positive impact of asking these powerful questions. So what you do is when you want to create a follow-up question, think, 
Do I want them to assess something or explain something? So explain would look like, no, let's say you're talking about how they made a previous decision before. Who was involved? First level question. Who was involved in when you guys decided on our CRM system uh, in the past? Well, that was these, these individuals. Now, how did you make that decision? What were the factors? That's explaining, right? Assessing would be something like I'm sitting next to a window here in my office. Uh, assessing would be if I say this is a beautiful view. Wouldn't you agree? Now, you have to assess the view, and then you're going to verbally say yes, no, I'm not sure, all of which is valuable. So assess or explain. Think of your follow-up questions with that mindset, and you'll be very effective. And then the third level, real quickly, is desire for gain or fear or loss, where you focus on the outcome of um, the, the conversation that you're talking about, the, the model of questions. But where great salespeople live is in that second level. They ask powerful follow-up questions that guide people in assessing or explaining. I love that. And it just triggered a, a question I had. We might be going a step backwards, but I'm trying to give the most value to the listener. And that's, in my opinion, well, let's not ask my opinion. What do you think the hardest part of any sale is in the entire process? Mm. You know, really, it's uh, oftentimes that introductory phase of the sale. So it's breaking through that status quo bias. Uh, that is always a challenge because if there's a lot of call reluctance. People are afraid to do it oftentimes. And you're often, sometimes you're interrupting people regardless of the way you do it. Phone, social media, networking event, doesn't matter. Yeah. You're still somewhat interrupting them. So that's, that's very challenging. And I'll say something else that's challenging about questions too is we often don't know what to even ask, what topics. Uh, for example, in sales, we always talk about listening. For so many motivational speeches on you need, you, know, you need to listen more and no one can resist reminding us that God gave us two ears and one mouth, so listen twice as much as you talk and, <laughs> and all this nonsense. Um, and I think the better question is not should you listen more. Of course you should listen. Everyone already knows that. The problem is what should you be listening for? Once you know what to listen for, uh, problems with questions often deteriorate and your listening skills increase radically because you know exactly what you should find out on these sales calls. And so that is a major issue that we talk about in the book. Not should you listen more, of course you should, but what are you listening for? Focus on that, make it practical, and you'll find that, boy, once you identify what you should be listening for, it, it takes your sales ability to the next level because that's a big problem a lot of salespeople struggle with is they find a lot of information out about their potential customers, some of it irrelevant, some of it relevant, but do they find the right information out that's really going to help them leverage uh, and really show value later on in the sale? That's key. Yeah, I would agree. I, I'm glad you said that. The, the idea of the first part uh, interrupting them, the status quo bias, that, that being the toughest part. And since we've covered that in terms of show value and, and and then look at the pain and all that. Um, is the, I want to make sure we cover that in depth uh, and, and we, we kind of get as much out of you as we can on that subject. Is that kind of the main way you break through that? The, the introductory, you know, I'm just trying to get you interested. Yeah, so what I'll do, so if I'll, I'll tell you exactly how we do it at my firm mm -hmm. and how we train our oh, clients yeah. to do it. Yeah, so we'll break through, right? We want to give value at first. So we'll do research, and we'll try to understand who you are, what's going on. You know, is there, is there any growth initiatives coming up? Is there any, any changes that I can find uh, looking at your social media, looking at press releases, looking at the website, anything that I can leverage? And then I engage you with that, and I give something of value. So for us and my firm, it's usually like a white paper or, an, or a report or something that infographic, something that has a high level of value. 
And then as soon as I get in, now I start asking questions. And I, they answer my questions because I just gave them something of value that they're grateful for. So now they reciprocate by answering my questions. And now you've got to ask great questions. So I want to get to that second level right away. Why? It creates a pleasurable experience and it builds trust. So that keeps them on the call with me or it keeps them engaged regardless of the channel I'm using because they enjoy it, right? And they're getting value out of that too. So I'm continuing to provide value. So I'm all about value creation. We got to constantly be giving our potential customers value on every sales call relentlessly. And if you do that, they'll always take your calls. They'll always respond to your emails. And so I'm asking questions, trying to understand their situation, helping them better understand their own situation by asking them these second and third level questions. And then I can real quickly um, demonstrate how we can possibly help them and give them some real value again. So I said, based on what you shared, and then I'll go into that very quickly, demonstrate some value, and then get an agreement to go to the next stage of the sale with me, whether that's a, you know, a, a presentation or a meeting with some other people in their company or whatever that is. And I do that very quickly. But I start with giving, then I ask powerful questions that give them even more value. Then I demonstrate my expertise by giving even more value with a recommendation and some more insights. And then I ask them to go to the next step and almost always they will because all I've done is give value. I mean, so they've enjoyed, I could literally send them a bill at this point and they would pay it some of them, right? Because <laughs> I've just been giving value. So that's what I'm all about. At my firm, if you call up someone to follow up and you just say, hey, I'm just following up with you, uh, we have a problem. No, you got to be given value. You mm -hmm. can follow up. That's great. But you got to bring something of value to the table. If it's just about us, that's a problem because our buyers don't care about us. So it's always got to be about them. If you keep that focus, boy, you're going to be very successful at breaking through that status quo bias. I love it, David. That was really helpful. I want to see if we have a few minutes to touch on uh, something I think that also plagues a lot of salespeople or at least gives a little of the sweats, and that's the close. And mm. first, with that in mind, you know, what do you, how would you define close? Like, what does that mean? Yeah, I vary from the way traditionally sales practices, uh, sales methodologies have defined closing because most define closing as that commitment at the big commitment at the end of the sale. And um, like I said, everything we do, we base on actual science. So we look at how does the brain make a buying decision? And as we talked about, it's a series of incremental commitments. So we look at closing holistically as something that's happening throughout the sale. And I'm not talking about the nonsense ABC closing always. That's not, I'm not talking about anything <laughs> like that. Please don't misunderstand. Glenn <laughs> what Gary, I'm Glenn Ross. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, exactly. I'm talking about literally helping the brain make these certain commitments. So we look at closing as a series of incremental commitments that guide people in a progression of consent. And then, of course, there is that final commitment at the end of the buying decision. But that commitment is intertwined and literally dependent on the previous commitments that have been made. And that's what every piece of research shows. And so that's how we define closing, looking at it holistically as something that's happening throughout the sale, not something that just happens at the end of the sale. I love that. And then, uh, it, you know, when it does come down to that end of sale, you know, we need the signature on the contract, we need the check to come, whatever it is. Any quick tips there? 
Absolutely. If you've gotten your other commitments earlier on, and we know what these commitments are. They're not this nebulous commitments. We know specifically what they are, like that why change that I mentioned earlier. That's one of six that the research shows our brains must make. So when I get to the end, that final commitment, listen, I've guided people on this progression of consent. They're ready to say yes to me. I don't encounter a lot of objections at the end of the sale because I've already negated them all prior to. So the, sa- the close at the end is a much different experience when you use a science-backed approach than regular. So simply what we'll do is one of two things. You can simply use a closing statement, which is a very assumptive statement, like, well, the next step will be, or, you know, to begin, I'll need you to sign the contract, you know, and people go right along with it because mm-hmm. they're ready to buy, mm-hmm. or we'll use a closing question, uh, which is like, are you ready to give Huffeld Group a try? Or when would you like for us to schedule that installation? You know, something very assumptive. Why? Because I've already gotten all my strategic commitments. They're ready to buy. I'm not ready to face a lot of objections here because I've already neutralized them. So it's a whole different experience because I've sold to the way the brain buys, and now they're ready to say yes to me, and it'd be abnormal for them to say no. You know, David, uh, as I mentioned, really great information. Can tell you know your stuff and you're passionate about it. I got to admit, though, I'd be scared if you called me trying to sell me something. I don't think I would stand a chance. That's just <laughs> So hopefully it's something I want to buy. Well, thank you. I'll be giving you a call as soon as we're done with this podcast. <laughs> Take that as a compliment. No, so it's great. And and this is just a fraction of what's covered in the brand new book uh, that you wrote, The Science of Selling, Proven Strategies to Make Your Pitch, Influence Decisions, and Close the Deal. Is there anywhere else for our listeners that are interested? Of course, we will link to this on Smart People Podcast um, to your book and, and to this post. But is there anywhere else that you would like to direct our listeners that are, you know, interested in in, uh, honing their selling chops? Absolutely. Uh, Go to our website, huffeldgroup.com, H-O-F-F-E-L-D-G-R-O-U-P.com. And there's all kind of free resources on there, articles, blogs, white papers, uh, podcasts, videos as well. You can check out all completely free. You can learn about science-based selling and how to apply these strategies as well into, uh, into your everyday uh, selling practice. And then also connect with us on Twitter. Of course, we have 102,000 followers. We give a lot of great value, a lot of content on Twitter, and then uh, LinkedIn as well. We also have a growing YouTube channel too. So check us out all over. Wow. And providing value everywhere. Well, David, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. Congratulations on the book and your success. Excellent. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate your time and your thoughtful questions. Absolutely. Thanks again. All right. All righty. Bye-bye. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with David Huffeld. His book, The Science of Selling, Proven Strategies to Make Your Pitch, Influence Decisions, and Close the Deal – can be found at your local bookstore and on Amazon. And as always, if you do decide to purchase it through Amazon, please make sure that you are using the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Making your Amazon purchases through our link is a free and easy way to support the show. It comes to no cost to you. We get a nice little kickback from Amazon and it helps us keep the lights on. If you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, you can always leave us a rating, review, and comment over on iTunes. It only takes a couple minutes, but again, it's a small thing that you can do that will greatly help out the show. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can always shoot us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. 
Happy 2017. I hope your year has started off well. We've got some great interviews coming up, so make sure you stay tuned to all things Smart People Podcast by going to the website, smartpeoplepodcast.com, signing up for the newsletter, subscribing to the show, telling your friends about it, and we will see you all next episode.